1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network. I'm Deidre Tala, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Amy Potter, Stephen Hammer, Derek Alderman, the authors of Remembering Enslavement, Reassembling the Southern Plantation Museum. How are you doing today?
0: Very good. Thank you.
1: Just fine, thank you for having me. Yes,
3: I'm very happy to be here, I'm doing well.
2: Thank you. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project.
0: Derek, I think you're going first.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I'll go ahead and start us off, I apologize. Uh, 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 I'm Derek and... uh, I'm, I'm a cultural historical geographer, and I specialize in the American South, and I've long been interested in race and public memory and the African-American freedom struggle. And a lot of my early work looked at the memorials and monuments and places that are named to remember the Civil Rights Movement. And in doing that work for so many years, I, I really came to a very sobering, sobering revelation that to do real justice to remembering the civil rights movement, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of the African-American journey and really do justice to remembering enslavement. And that's really what brought me to this project. Um, and real also realizing and having talked with uh, communities for so long that they were quite frustrated, uh, particularly black communities were very frustrated and the way in which the public was miseducated about the realities and the uh, of, of enslavement and the contributions of the enslaved. Uh, and it really just prompted me to delve much deeper.
3: I'll pick up where Derek left off. Uh, I do think of myself as a cultural geographer, although I also um, am a cartographer. And I moved here to Fredericksburg, Virginia, um, when I got uh, this job back in the late nineties and very interested in how people identified with their places. And it became very apparent that I lived in a place where history and the history of Fredericksburg was very, very important uh, to this place's identity. And it became very obvious that this history was fairly white It focused on the Civil War, it focused on the Revolutionary War and colonial era, and at least in the official histories that were shown in signs and monuments and talked about uh, by tour guides, the history of enslavement and other episodes, of course, of Black history were pretty hard to come by. Uh, So I began to work on that and talk to the community about that and to publish on that. And... Um, increasingly overlapped with Derek at conferences. Uh, We've known each other since the mid-1990s. And Derek and others involved in this work invited me to join um, a fieldwork trip down in Louisiana back in 2012, believe it or not. And um, so that's kind of when I was invited to join the team on this particular project. It's the first time I ended up working um, at plantation museums?
0: So um, I got involved because like Steve, I was also um, invited to join the research team and my invitation came I, I believe for a number of reasons. So my PhD is from Louisiana State. So I was actively living um, in in one of our research regions that would become one of our, our dominant research regions of Louisiana and River Road. And I had also worked as a tour guide at a plantation in Baton Rouge uh, during graduate school. So one of I uh, one of the major contributions that I gave to the team was understanding the complexities of how tour guiding works and how there's nuance. It's not um, always just guides reciting the same script, that there's a lot of flexibility, a lot of interaction, a lot of performativity. And so I was really um, interested in... Um, because of my own experience of working at a plantation where they were undergoing these transformations of engaging more deeply and meaningfully with the history of slavery and the lives of the enslaved at that plantation, I was really interested in the larger goals of the research project and exploring regional variation and all these other actors um, that were involved in, um, in, in plantation museums and what was happening.
2: Okay. Tell the audience about your fieldwork and what were some of the questions that the past research on plantations museums did not discuss?
0: Okay, so I think I'm taking this one. Um, so um, we stand on the shoulders of a lot of really incredible research that has been done on plantation museums. Uh, there was a seminal work that came out in 2002 uh, looking at... Um, representations of of slavery at plantations in uh, Virginia, Georgia, Louisiana, came up with a really powerful typology to to understand this. Uh, Our own colleague, Zava Butler, um, had some really important work come out in 2001, um, thinking about, you know, critically analyzing these sites and in in the narratives that they're putting forth um, with regards to um, enslavement. But what we noticed um, when we were building our grants and in subsequent years actually doing our field work is that these studies usually um, only focused on uh, maybe taking tours. Um, They would only take tours of the site, maybe it'd be one or two tours. Um, So the methodology would often be quite limited or the studies would focus on what was happening at a single plantation. Um, Maybe it would be one plantation in Louisiana or in South Carolina. So what our research really sought to do was look at all of these different elements um, whether it's owners and managers, their roles. We're looking at um, the ways the built environment is working towards understanding inclusion of slavery. We wanted to understand tourists. What, what did tourists expect? What did they want to hear about? So we did uh, pre- and post-tour uh, surveys, so in terms of our methodology we wanted to understand how guides or docents or volunteers were part of this process. How were they resisting or embracing the inclusion of enslavement on tours, right? So our methodology was actually quite different and quite holistic in seeking to understand what was happening at these sites. We took Lots of tours um, to to try to get a sense of the complexity because, as I mentioned, I was a guide at a plantation. There's a lot of difference in variation um, between guides um, in in a, a plantation museum. And we also wanted to understand what was happening in different plantation regions. So we didn't want to just focus on a single plantation. We wanted to focus on a concentration of of plantations within a region. So hence, you have the emergence of James River, Charleston, and River Road.
2: Now, what are some of the ways in which you conclude that each museum participate in the emergent plantation museum experience?
3: So this question, I think, requires sort of a two-part approach, and maybe Amy and Derek will do the first part. I know it's later, um, because it comes up later in the book, where you want to ask us about what the word assemblage means. But we think at this point we really need to define that before we can talk about what we've defined as the emergent plantation museum experience. So either Amy or Derek can fill in what we mean by a museum as an assemblage of things that can build off of what uh, Amy just talked about in terms of our field work. And then I'll talk a little bit about the emergent part.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm happy to jump in here and and I really would uh, uh, ask Amy to join in as well. Um, I think one of the things that our work does that is truly breaking some new ground versus some of this outstanding work that's been done in the past is that we are really looking at the plantation as a larger assemblage of all the many actors, the objects, the narratives, the spaces, uh, all the emotions, the different social actors, uh, not just the staff, but also the visitors that Amy's referred to. All of that is working together to create this emergent uh, plantation museum experience. And we emphasize emergent because it is always emerging Uh, It's never completely finished. It it always can come in different uh, forms and in different uh, directions, depending on how all these parts get assembled together. And I think in many ways, that's a a much more satisfactory way of treating the Plantation Museum than perhaps in the past, where uh, researchers would do a fantastic job on focusing on just one aspect, but not considering the, the whole. And so by looking at assemblage, we're also looking at the way in which people emotionally are affected by the plantation Um, and and also thinking about it, the plantation museum being a co-constructed entity that is not simply scripted and laid out by the manager or the curator, but it's in fact co-constructed by visitors. Um, and, and then I think the last thing I would say about the assemblage model, and there's a lot more that can be said, is that it's inherently reparative. Uh, it's, it's basically suggesting that we don't simply study these plantation museums for the sake of studying them. We study them with the uh, the goal, the intent of bringing uh, positive social change to, um, to what is being said and not said at the plantation and doing true justice to the enslaved who for, for to- far too long have been marginalized within these, these institutions.
0: I would also add um, this idea of assemblage um, may seem complex and a fancy word, but essentially we're trying to understand how, how these different entities at the plantation museum are working towards or against the likelihood of hearing about the history of slavery. So there may be certain aspects within the plantation um, museum that are inhibiting that likelihood. And you see those aspects, depending on the plantation, there are certain things that might be happening um, that, that might be impacting that likelihood maybe more than at another site. So we're, we're ultimately this goal of trying to understand what is, what is impacting this ability of engaging with this history in a meaningful way.
2: What did you find concerning who sets the narratives on how slavery is told in the museums?
0: Um, so again, it, it really uh, depends on the site. And um, so so some of our, our plantation museums, we have um, guides and docents have resources. Um, they have, you know, books and and, and maybe a script that they can look at and adapt and create their tour. We have other sites like one in, in Louisiana that is heavily scripted. It is probably the most scripted site that we studied where the management actually created the script. And when we interviewed guides there, you know, they're probably adhering to 80, 90% of that script. Um, so, so it really depends, and and we'll talk later about sites, um, you know, that set the theme at the top, and then everything works within that that particular theme. Um, and and guides will develop um, their tour based on the theme fitting into that larger goal of, of the site. So there's there's tremendous kind of variation, but a lot of it comes down to uh, some of the, the agency of docents and guides um, having kind of the, some of the final say in, in some of what's being discussed at the site.
3: I would add to that, that we sort of think through the stories or narratives and how much enslavement has been a theme within that as there's um, elements of intent from the museum's perspective. Management sets a theme, then sets up the spaces and the furnishings and the decorations and the grounds to support that theme. They, As Amy said, they say, okay, we want to make sure we cover this topic in this room, and then they turn that over to the guides who then in most sites have a lot of agency on exactly what gets said but then we get back to that word emergent because on any one tour you know we never saw a guide sitting there looking and reading a script in whether it was they wrote it or the management and said they are talking to an audience and the audience is responding and the audience is asking questions or maybe somebody's rolling their eyes or they're laughing or talking amongst themselves which then affects what the guide is saying so visitors challenging what the guide says, nodding along and accepting what the guide says, um, questioning, all of that then has an effect on what these narratives or stories are and how much enslavement becomes central or marginalized in them.
2: You talk about um, artifacts politics in your book. Tell the audience a little about that.
1: Well, when we talk about uh, artifact politics, it it refers to the fact that artifacts and material objects that you find in plantation museums, and really all museums for that matter, uh, they play a very active role in the public interpretation of of history. And those artifacts are vehicles uh, for telling and materializing these large stories and then those stories really communicate to the public about what and who matters historically um and they're powerful anchors within the curated spaces of plantations and they're touchstones on the tours where the tour guide will often reference these objects and wrap their narrative and wrap in fact uh visitor questions around these artifacts um traditionally plantation museums Uh, carried out a a very unequal uh, artifact politics. Uh, There's often a a discussion of the wealth and possessions of the enslaved uh, enslaver family, uh, their china, their furniture, uh, their art, and often those artifacts and possessions uh, deflected attention away from discussing the enslaved and their lives and their work and their contributions. Um, and some plantations have claimed for many years, uh, prob- uh, problematically, I might add, that they don't have surviving artifacts or material traces of enslaved communities, uh, which they then use as justification for talking about not talking about the enslaved nearly as much as they need to. And even when there are material spaces and objects um, on plantations that can be used in narrating the history of slavery, uh, like slave cabins, for example, when they are available, uh, they can be a great deal of inconsistency in how much attention they get on a tour uh, and, in, and in the experience. And, and they can often be interpreted in very narrow ways that really deny the humanity and deny the creativity uh, of the enslaved. Um, and, and what we have found is actually then some, many cases that, um, The objects and the spaces they're used to interpret the enslaved life and the life of the enslaver uh, are often segregated. They're kept apart rather than brought together, which is also problematic. And what we've suggested in our book, and uh, I think um, there are sites that are increasingly trying to move towards doing this in a responsible way, is that we've suggested that there needs to be a larger symbolic and material excavation of artifacts, Um, and and what many plantation museums probably need to do is realize that that almost all objects on the plantation bear some trace of enslaved life, and that um, there needs to be an an approach to artifacts that honors the enslaved lives and their works, um, and how it runs throughout almost every part of the landscape of the plantation. And also, I think another important point is that Um, When there is a lack of slavery-specific artifacts, reference can still be made uh, to the material legacy of the enslaved, Um, and plantations can, in fact, use artifact surrogates. They can use stand-ins when they don't have an actual artifact or object from their specific site. They can bring in objects from other sites to help tell their story and the wider story of enslavement.
2: Can you tell us why you selected James River, Charleston, and River Road as the three regions for selecting the 15 plantations, museums?
3: Uh, yeah, so this gets into our research design when we uh, planned out um, the proposal we sent to the National Science Foundation, which funded our research. And basically there are a few factors. First, all three of those regions have significant clusters of plantation museums. So in other words, they're places where plantation museums are important parts of the heritage tourism industry in that region. Um, We also picked places that had been featured in previous research, which would allow us to have some sense of how things may have changed since some of the seminal works that Amy described earlier. We wanted the regions to have significant tourism draws, so other attractions that made sure there were lots of people coming to the region. So River Road is anchored by New Orleans, which is a huge tourism market. Um, The Charleston region, of course, is Charleston. Um, And in the James River, we had a very large and famous heritage tourism draw all by itself, Colonial Williamsburg, and then the other parts of... Uh, the region's focus on colonial history, um, historic Jamestown, and the Yorktown battlefield. The final thing that that played a role in selecting these is we needed at least one member of the research team to be close enough to be able to build relationships with the plantation museums, because we had to talk with them and say, this is what we're doing, and this is how Uh, You might find it advantageous for us to come onto your site and survey visitors and take your tours and interview you and interview your tour guides. We had to build a relationship to get that permission. And we needed somebody to be close by enough to make multiple trips to be able to talk to the owners and managers of the 15 sites we ended up choosing.
2: Virginia James River was discussed in Chapter 3. What did you find out about this um, plantation museum?
3: Well, I'm at the University of Mary Washington, so I'm in the same state as the James River region, uh, which is also sometimes called a tidewater region in um, the southeastern part of Virginia. And one of the things that became evident to us pretty quickly as we set up research and then started... Uh, working on the five sites is that this is a region where the heritage tourism industry is in trouble. Um, The main tourism draw, Colonial Williamsburg, has seen its number of visitors go down really since the 1990s. And many of the museums in our study depend on visitors who are going to Williamsburg to take side trips to see Berkeley Plantation or Shirley Plantation. Um, so they all were worried about declining visitors, and that also meant that they were getting fewer, less revenue. And that had a huge impact on what Amy described as inhibiting their ability to include stories of enslaved people in the narratives. Um, it also meant that they were attracting fewer and older guests who maybe not were not expecting to hear as much about enslavement. And so not having the revenue to do the research necessary to find the artifacts that Derek was talking about, to uncover stories in their own archives, to train their guides, to deal with the emotions that come up when you are talking about a difficult topic like enslavement. So there are lots of things that resources inhibited in terms of the James River plantations being able to address the topic of enslavement and the To a degree, their management's focus, at least at some of the sites, if they had to make a choice between spending resources on enhancing their ability to talk about enslavement versus to talk about the white colonial owners of the plantations, they tended to go with talking about the white colonial owners because they thought their older visitors wanted to hear more about that.
2: In Chapter 4, you look at Charleston, South Carolina, Tell us more.
0: So um, Charleston is is actually quite a contrast from what Steve was just describing in the James River. So the region in terms of heritage tourism is quite healthy. We see some of the largest uh, uh, tourism numbers in terms of visitors to plantations, sometimes several hundred thousand. Um, uh, We have sites that are quite large in scale. Um, which made field work a bit tricky um, in trying to navigate just the 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 scale of the site. Um, we when we were talking about Charleston, two of the major themes that that came out of our research in this this region is the plantation edutainment complex and segregation. So in Charleston, I I just mentioned the scale of these sites; they're quite large in terms of acreage, and in these sites um, are multifunctional, so they have multiple tours, multiple opportunities to engage um, with the plantation. So you have maybe a historic house tour, you have a tour of the garden, you have a tour uh, on the river, right, um, of 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 rice, uh, an agricultural tour. So so these sites are again what we call edutainment complexes. So so you have these options to both um, be educated and entertain. These sites also host weddings and festivals. So that was something that came up quite a bit, our visitors coming to the site and engaging in festivals that really have nothing to do with the history of the site. Um, And so... You have visitors that can participate in a lot of of different opportunities and activities outside of the traditional house tour. What we also found in Charleston is that um, slavery um, had been discussed on tours um, pretty early relative to the other regions, but it was segregated to um, an optional tour. So, in order to learn about enslavement in the history of slavery at that site, you had to often take a separate tour. At one of the sites during our uh, period of research, you had to pay extra money um, to to take that tour. So, so you have a situation where um, the assemblage, you have this this edu um, this. Uh, um, entertainment component drowning out the, the ways and ability to engage with slavery. Um, we also found um, that we, we see themes of when slavery is discussed, it's often discussed in terms of benevolent slavery. It wasn't that bad. Um, or even um, the idea of descendant communities um, sticking around Um, And in using descendant communities to um, really whitewash the impacts of enslavement within that region.
2: Chapter five, Louisiana River Road. Tell us about that.
0: Well, Louisiana was our original fieldwork site. So, you know, um, one of our uh, co-authors had been engaging in research in Louisiana for over a decade um, before some of us had even um, joined the research team. And um, what we found um, in Louisiana was really quite a spectrum. Um, You have um, one uh, plantation that uh, was the uh, only traditional plantation to actually include the site's original slave cabins on the tour. Um, all the way to a, a plantation that ad- adamantly said that they were not about enslavement, um, despite the fact that visitors to the region were extremely interested in learning about slavery. And I'll let others pipe in as well.
3: Um, so, what Amy said is right, it's a, probably the most diverse region in terms of having a site, like she mentioned, Laura Plantation, which both emphasize the role of women because it was about a family that where women led the family um, of owners who, you know, then used enslaved labor to harvest sugar and um, sugar cane. Um, but that site also because of changes that had happened in their assemblage before we did our research, they had lost a wing of the house to a fire. They made the new tour, incorporate the cabins, um, the original slave cabins that they had, and they started telling the narrative of some of the people who had been enslaved there. It was still set in what we might call the back of the house. You didn't talk about uh, enslaved people while you were looking at the nice furnishings and talking about the business has run by the owning family, but you had significant material about slavery there. Um, we also saw a transition. There's another place with probably the most visited site amongst all of the sites that we talked that we did research at called Oak Alley. And from a before, early pilot research where they had costumed guides that almost never talked about enslavement to we watched them build an exhibit with rebuilt um, slave cabins. and the exhibit was self-guided so people could learn more about enslavement which kind of made it separate and unequal to talking about the white masters living inside the big house. And then after we finished our field work, we went back and found that they had started even incorporating a little bit more about enslavement, although inconsistently within the main tour. So we got to see a lot of dynamics in River Road because of the length of time that we did research there.
2: Chapter 6 focused on two specific plantations, the Whitney Plantation and the McClaw Plantation. Can you tell us why you separated those two?
0: Well, I'll go ahead and start. So these are our counter-narrative sites. Um, These are sites um, that were doing things quite differently than any of the other sites that we studied. So, um, for example... Uh, McLeod Plantation, which was located in Charleston, um, was our newest plantation um, to open in terms of tourism. They opened in 2015. Uh, Whitney actually opened in 2014. So um, we call these our counter-narrative sites because they are centering enslavement in their assemblage. So in terms of McLeod, um, it's it's owned and operated by Charleston County, and um as I I, I discussed this idea, this is the site that established its mission, which uh, its mission was to examine the transitions of African-Americans from slavery to freedom and their ongoing challenges in the 20th 20th century. So you see management establishing this mission and then everything else uh, underneath that mission, whether it's guides, whether it's the signage on the plantation, how the tours are designed, all are meant to to honor and embrace that mission. So you have guides who create tours, right, that that adhere to uh, that mission, um, you have a plantation tour. Um, this is actually the only one in, in our entire study that doesn't go into the big house, it actually focuses on the landscape, the material culture, focusing on the original slave cabins um, that were on the site. What's also interesting about this site is that the slave cabins were lived in until 1990. So this gives this site a really interesting opportunity uh, to engage in the legacies of enslavement, not just in that, the Emancipation Proclamation, but the reverberations of enslavement and talk about how people are living in poverty um, in, in, um, this area in, in living in these, these slave cabins until, till 1990, but you really see something very different happening with, uh, McLeod plantation with Whitney plantation where they are centering enslavement in their assemblage. And I think someone else is going to talk about Whitney.
1: I'm happy to talk about Whitney and, uh, encourage Steve to join if you'd like. Um, Uh, Whitney Plantation is perhaps one of the most famous of these counter-narrative plantation museum sites. Um, And I think it's probably worth pointing out that these counter-narrative sites are important not just because of the very different, more just uh, representations of enslaved life that they present, but they also serve as, to some degree, role models for other plantations that are undertaking the hard work of trying to do a better uh, job in terms of telling the history of enslavement. Uh, we often encountered uh, plantation museums that were not necessarily doing a great job, and they would say, well, who should we look to? And it was always very uh, uh, assuring and, and I think uh, very powerful that we could point to plantations like McLeod, but also plantations uh, like Whitney Plantation. And and Whitney Plantation is, is a very powerful site. In fact, uh, One of our big uh, takeaways from that site in in terms of uh, surveying and interviewing uh, visitors was that it was transformative. It had an emotional impact on visitors. Uh, It was clearly elevating education over anything that would resemble entertainment, uh, which was a a powerful, uh, a powerful theme. Uh, I think one of the things that Whitney did uh, was very, part of its power was visual. Uh, as you enter Whitney Plantation and you take the tour, um, you see these terracotta statues of enslaved children that dot the landscape. And those statues give presence to what is often absent from uh, plantation museum narratives and representations. The other part that was very fascinating, and we found that uh, visitors um, responded very positively and it resonated with them, was that the actual um, uh, path of the tour itself. And one of the things that we did in our study, which I'm uh, uh, very proud of, is that um, our team developed a narrative mapping uh, methodology that allowed us to map um, how tours were run, what spaces they went to, what objects and themes were discussed. And we were able to determine uh, exactly the the actual geography of the tour and actually map out um, how people are interacting with those histories. and and where things are emphasized over other themes and so forth. But one of the things that's powerful about Whitney is that it is a, in the words of my good colleague, Perry Carter, it's an inverted, uh, it's an inversion of the standard tour. In other words, the narrative completely centers enslaved uh, people and communities. And at the same time, it's inverted in the sense that it begins by talking about enslaved life and struggles, um, slave cabins, the jails that were used to confine the enslaved labor, and then only ends, it ends at the big house. While many standard tours begin at the big house, they're sort of um, taken up with that. And then we sort of have slavery discussed at the very end in a secondary way, but we don't have that with Whitney. Um, I think one of the other things that's probably very important about Whitney is that it does give a materiality to the enslaved experience. We were talking about artifact politics. We were talking about the importance of these objects. And there are lots of objects at Whitney that uh, draw uh, visitors into that story. It's also very important to realize is that the composition of visitors to Whitney, um, they they were predominantly white, middle-class, very well-educated, especially well-educated in the case of Whitney. But we also had a fair number of non-white visitors. And in fact, 16% Sixteen percent of the visitors, when we surveyed uh, there at Whitney, were uh, were African American, which was a much higher percentage than you see uh, at other plantations.
3: I think both Amy and, and Derek really covered uh, the key elements that make Whitney and McLeod very different in terms of their narratives, um, their arrangement of their landscapes, and buildings and other, you know, artifacts. Um, The one thing that I think I would add or just reiterate is as Amy started, those are the two newest ones in that they did not open as plantation museums until 2014 and 2015 and had never been sites of tourism before. And we found this to be pretty important because All of the other sites, even those where you had managers and guides who really wanted to change the way they talked about their history and incorporate the lives and contributions and suffering of enslaved people more fully, they had these legacies they had to deal with because they had been set up to not talk about enslavement, but to talk about the beautiful furnishings of the colonial or Civil War era owners. Um, So they had, that was, again, an inhibition. They had everything set up to tell a different story. Whitney and McLeod started with missions to tell the story of the enslaved to center that. And then they arranged their museums and trained their guides and built up stories and Worked with visitors to make sure the stories of people who had been enslaved at these plantations were the center of the visitor experience.
2: Now, what information and advice would you give researchers and practitioners?
1: Well, I'll begin by addressing that um, I, our team is is very much devoted to public outreach and public engagement, and and. I, Our team is also always working towards what what I like to call, and many other people call, a translational science. And a translational science is about ensuring that we translate and amplify our findings um, in ways that can be used for a greater public good. Uh, And it's really about, and this is the hopes of our book, is the hopes of many of the things that we put out and our presentations is that we hope that we're creating actionable knowledge. We're, we're creating knowledge that can be leveraged to make interventions for reforming the discussions of enslavement uh at Southern Plantation Museums uh and at other kinds of historical sites. And by trying to understand what obstacles exist at plantations that prevent visitors from fully engaging in the history of enslavement. It's not just simply an intellectual project. Uh, we've also taken it on as, a, as social work, uh, so to speak. Um, and one of the things that uh, I think we worked very hard on and, and I think has been, I think uh, has potentially great success, I hope, and we hope is that we conclude our book with a set of guiding questions for plantation museum managers and staff uh, and really others, including scholars, to think about as we think about how can we reform the Southern Plantation Museum? Um, how can we, to refer to the title of the book, reassemble um, and and, ch- and change uh, this institution, which for far too long has been a- uh, associated with uh, annihilating symbolically the identities and histories of the enslaved? And we developed over 60 questions that hope. Uh, that we hope prompt museums to take a critical look. And we want them to take a critical look at their practices and and their policies and their perspectives and their assumptions. Um, And those questions are very targeted. They're very pointed in terms of uh, encouraging museum managers and others to think about that. And and we emphasize, for example, in those questions that we provided towards the end of the book, a very holistic uh, way of looking at the plantation. And, and we're asking plantation museums to, to think about um, you know, what's the content of your guided tours? Um, what material objects do you tend to display and not display? Uh, how do you approach event planning, particularly when it's event planning that can have a very problematic relationship with the educational goal of plantations? Um, how do you manage interactions with visitors? How do you, do you coordinate in any way? Do you consult in any way with other museums that could be of some help to you? And especially important um, is to what extent are you interacting with and being accountable to those descended from the enslaved, um, whether they're living close by, still near the plantation in that general area, or they've moved away and but they still claim that plantation and they claim that uh, part of the South is as their home uh, and is, is a place where they belong. And, and I don't have time. We don't have time to go through every all 60 of those questions. But, um, you know, you can think about, for example, is is there a critical treatment of enslavement in your museum's mission statement? That's, a, a, I think, a, a major issue. Do you have people of color? in positions of power and interpretation uh, in your plantation? Um, how can your museum ensure that, you know, its educational responsibility is the top priority? Uh, how can you, uh, how much do you know about who visits your plantation, the, the actual tourist? And, and, and what can you do to learn about what their interests and needs are with regard to learning about enslavement? How sensitive are you as a museum to visitors of color? Uh, we see a great deal of variation in our study with regard to that question. And does your plantation museum experience, uh, does it create an atmosphere that facilitates people having an empathy and a care for the struggles and achievements of the enslaved? Uh, and and the, the final word I would say is that we are really trying to push towards a holistic treatment of, uh, of, of these museums and also moving away from a very monolithic treatment of tourists and a very a very monolithic treatment of the plantation museum experience
0: i would also kind of to add to what derek was saying in terms of the visitor i think one of the important parts of our methodology is that we partnered with our plantation sites um and so we were able to go back and report to these managers um, our findings. And we um, generally found that visitors were very interested in learning about slavery and enslavement. And managers were often surprised by this because there's often this perception, oh, they're on holiday. They don't want to learn about these difficult histories, they wanna have fun, they wanna um, laugh and enjoy and look at the beautiful scenery. But in most cases, that's actually not true. And what was also interesting when uh, in Charleston, when we reported back to one of the plantation museums we partnered with, we had asked visitors what other sites that they were they were going to while they were in Charleston, and for one of these plantations, they were very surprised. They thought their competition, or you know, the other sites that visitors were coming uh, were coming from, were actually other plantation museums. And while in some instances that was the case, what we found was actually this particular plantation museum. Visitors were also going to the old slave mart that is in downtown Charleston, which it. Um, is a really impactful way to learn about enslavement and how enslaved people were sold in in the city of Charleston. So they were very surprised. And it really led to some really powerful conversations about ways to potentially change and engage more deeply because visitors weren't afraid to engage and wanted to engage.
2: Well, I have enjoyed our conversation. Can you tell us about the next project you'll be working on?
3: I think we can all talk about projects that have been um, ongoing since we finished the research and finished writing um, our book. I, for example, uh, because of the work we've done, um, we fielded uh, an invitation to um, a museum here in Virginia, um, Montpelier, which was the home of our fourth president, James Madison. And that led to another round of research where we surveyed visitors and interviewed managers and documented tours at the big um, presidential plantation museums in Virginia, including Mount Vernon and Monticello. Um, And we were able to send detailed reports to each one of these sites and are still working on interpreting some of the data and writing about it. Um, so that is a direct build from this to uh, work with some of the most famous plantation museums in the country.
0: So in addition to that, there are a few of uh, the original uh, research team on on the Plantation Museum NSF project that have gone on to be part of a new NSF grant looking at black history museums in different regions of the United States. So this is a really powerful opportunity to step away from plantation sites that have really whitewashed, annihilated, ignored, uh, distorted Black history, American history, and look at these really important museum sites that have been doing the hard work of, of telling Black history, American history, celebrating Black history, um, and Really, a, a movement uh, that you really see in the nineteen sixties and seventies, and in you know some important, pretty important museums like the New Smithsonian that have opened more recently. So we're we're looking at these Black History museums, and um, looking at regional differences, and in, in particularly ways um, that they engage in the communities around them.
1: In, in my case, uh, my work is is really going in two directions, and and one is a direct offshoot of this. Uh, project uh, on plantations, and the other is is more a more broader treatment. Uh, the the more direct uh, route is involved that I'm I'm looking at the uh, naming of businesses, uh, subdivisions, um, resorts, um, um, and the calling of them as plantations. The the place uh, plantation place naming, and I'm I'm looking at them as namescapes, and I'm I'm connecting the. Um, The the marketing of places as plantations uh, by name, uh, many of them with no real historical connection to actual plantation land. Uh, But I'm looking at that practice uh, and critiquing it and challenging it because I believe in many ways it's perpetuating this very same romanticizing of enslavement, this, this neglect of the enslaved lives and black lives that we see going on in some of the museums. Uh, And I'm interested in understanding how that connects to larger issues of uh, white supremacy and larger issues of the lost cause. Um, The other project is what I call the Living Black Atlas, which is my attempt at um, uh, working with other people as well uh, and understanding the role of cartography and counter mapping um, and and fugitive mapping within the African-American and black freedom struggle. Uh, And and, and thinking about the ways in which uh, African-Americans throughout their history here uh, have uh, acted as map makers and helped uh, and they in turn then help us uh, stretch what counts as a map, who counts as a map maker and the kind of political work and social good that maps can truly do when they're allowed to.
2: Well, thank you for being on the show and we look forward to reading about all of these projects.
3: Thank you. Thank you for taking time with us
0: today. Yes, thank you.